Great, thank you. It's so good to be here. I um, was born and raised in the Chicago area, but used to come up to Minnesota, Minneapolis. My sister lived here, and we would do Christmas in Minneapolis every year. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one time we were driving up here, and it was a snowstorm, typical, and uh, there were literally icicles on the front of the car as we were driving up here. And uh, then, uh, eventually, her husband got a new job in Los Angeles, and so we did Christmas in L.A. I like that much better than Christmas in Minnesota. But at any rate, I live in Indiana now, and I am a missionary with the Assemblies of God uh, with a ministry called Chi Alpha, which is the Assemblies of God Outreach to the Secular University. And so I uh, just came from pioneering Chi Alpha, no, just came, in 2007, I went to the university, Purdue University, to pioneer Chi Alpha there at that campus and served there for 13 years until recently I just transitioned into serving Chi Alpha in a national capacity and international capacity, training missionaries and student leaders in matters of applied theology and culture as our culture is shifting how do we not compromise on the word of God, but still have compassion for different things we run across in culture? And so that's what I'm doing. But like any good missionary, before I get into the message, I need to show you a picture of my family, right? Because you got to know my family. They're not with me here today. They couldn't make it. Um, but my first member I want to introduce you to is Bo. Um, yeah, there he is. So that's, that's his baby picture. Um, he's five years now, and he's grown up. He is now a 17-pound moose. Uh, of a cat. Um, but Bo is not super affectionate, and I really wanted a cat that would like, you know, he likes to be on your lap or at your feet, but I wanted one that was like a snuggler at night, you know. So I ended up getting uh, Tabitha, who I call Tabby. So you can see her in the next picture. She's my little snuggler. Uh, and there's Bo the moose on the background and little Tabby snuggling with me. Um, so at any rate, yes, I am a 48-year-old single woman with cats. Uh, that was never my intention. So uh, if you know a man who loves Jesus and he's radical in his 40s and 50s, uh, let's talk after service because I need some help here. <laughs> but at any rate, what I want to talk about to, with you today is a message called Compassion Without Compromise, uh, a Christian response to LGBT and what's going on in our culture today. So let's pray before we get into this. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would speak to us, that I would just be a vessel, and that my mouth would just be a mouthpiece for you to speak your heart to your people today. And I pray we'd have ears to hear and hearts to receive your heart. And Lord, that we would demonstrate your heart to the world, demonstrate compassion without compromising the word of God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this particular topic is because I recently completed my PhD at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, and my dissertation work was 30 case studies of men and women that were formerly same-sex attracted and have experienced transformation in their lives. And I wanted to know what can we learn from their journeys and their life experience that could help us when we're engaging with people in the church who might come to us and say, hey, I have unwanted same-sex attractions or unwanted gender dysphoria. There's always going to be people out there who embrace a gay identity and, and they don't believe it's morally wrong and they want to live that way. I'm not here to force people to change. But what I am here to do is to help us as the body of Christ help those who come to us and say, is there any hope for me? 
is change possible? Or am I consigned to a, a life of, of, you know, dealing with these unwanted attractions the rest of my life? Now, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because of my own life experience. So from my earliest memory, I wanted to be a little boy instead of a little girl. So you can see in the first picture here, I was quite boyish as a little girl. Uh, there was nobody who said, oh, we wish you were a boy or you're the son we never had. That was never verbalized to me. It was not something external. It was something internal inside of me where I just felt like I was trapped in the wrong body and I should have been a boy. And I desperately wanted to have male anatomy and the whole thing. Now my parents thought I was just a tomboy. I never articulated these things to them. So uh, you can see in the next picture, I was your typical kind of tomboy girl who loved to climb trees and play outside and be active. I didn't want to be inside playing with Barbies like my older sister or experimenting with makeup and all that stuff. When we played house, I was never the woman. I was always the father or, you know, some male figure. That was just my world. I was a tomboy through and through. So when I was in about fourth grade, one of my friends pushed me into the boys' bathroom and I saw this wall of urinals, uh, which you can see in the next shot, um, and I was like, what is this? I, I had no idea there was a way the other half lived. <laughs> and I, I was like, what is going on here? And I discovered, oh, this is something unique to the world of men, and that became kind of a, a symbol of this forbidden world that I desperately wanted to be a part of but I couldn't get into. And from that point forward, I began visiting little boys' restrooms, and as I matured into men's restrooms, uh, just to see the wall of urinals and to pretend to use a urinal. And I looked so much like a boy that men would come in and out of the bathroom and not even bat an eye. They just assumed I belonged there. And I was like, yes, you see who I really am. As I got into older life, that be ended up being a, a sexual fetish, a, a sexual high for me that I would go into men's restrooms and it was just the ultimate rush for me and it was something I just, I couldn't get free from. Now around the same time, about nine-ish years old, I heard about these things called sex change operations, which today we call sex reassignment or gender affirmation surgery. Um, I want you to know you can't actually change your sex. Uh, rearranging the skin on your body doesn't change your chromosomes. I will forever be XX chromosomes, and a man will forever be XY chromosomes. But anyway, as a nine-year-old, I didn't know that. And I thought, Is, are you serious? I can go to a hospital, have a surgery, go in as a girl, and come out the next day as a boy. Sign me up. So I decided when I was nine years old, as soon as I have enough money, as soon as I am old enough, I am going to get that sex change, I'm gonna change my name to David, and I will live happily ever after. Now, as I progressed into junior high, you can see, again, I still was just kind of androgynous and boyish, and while all the other girls around me were, you know, becoming boy crazy and wanting to date and think so-and-so's cute and experiment with makeup and all of that stuff, I wanted nothing to do with the world of women. I despised my own body that was beginning to show signs of female maturation. I hated it. I became desperately jealous of the boys around me whose voices were changing, and they were becoming everything I longed to be. The intensity of that jealousy just consumed me. And around the same time, I discovered to my horror that I was attracted to women and not attracted to men. That was a horrifying experience for me. And one thing you need to understand is not everybody who's transgender, now I didn't even know there was a word for what I was experiencing with my gender confusion, 
But not everybody who's transgender is necessarily same-sex attracted. But for me, I had both. And so I discovered I'm attracted to women. This is the 1980s. Nobody was talking about these things back then. You were ostracized if you identified as gay in our culture back then. And those of you that are older understand that. It was a totally different world than it is now. It was not cool to experiment or to come out as gay. There was no LGBT community or safe zone at my school. I was on my own. And I was horrified. And I couldn't tell anyone. And so I'm trying to make sense of my life. And I thought, you know... If I am really a man trapped inside of a female body, then I should be attracted to women. That just makes me a straight man. So I just need to hold out, get the sex change operation, and all of my life will come into alignment. And that was my reasoning as a little sixth grader. Well, as I got into late junior high, as you can see in the next picture, I started to think through the ramifications of my decisions in a way you don't think through when you're nine and your brain hasn't quite matured that much. And I was starting to think through, wait a minute, how am I going to tell my family? What will my sister think? What will the neighbors think? What will my grandparents think? I don't think I can do this. I don't think anybody can ever know my internal struggle. And I thought I was the only person on the planet who was struggling with these things. I didn't know there was anybody else that was like me. And so I thought, there's, there's no way. I'm afraid if I tell my family, they'll reject me. And so I thought, you know, I really have two options. Um, one, I can run away, have the surgery, and live happily ever after. Or two, I can not have the surgery, keep my family, but know that it will consign me to a life of suicidal despair and depression. And I remember the day I was walking down the hall in school, and I consciously chose option B. Because I thought, you know, I don't have any friends. Nobody wants to be friends with somebody that hates themselves. I just never felt like I fit in. I had a deep wound of rejection. And I thought, you know, I don't think I can live the rest of my life totally by myself. Even if I did get to be a man, I would be lonely. And so I decided I want to keep my family. I know they love me. And so I made a conscious decision. I'm not going to have the surgery. I'm not going to transition. I'm not going to come out. Nobody's ever going to know my deep, dark secret. Obviously, God changed that. But at that point, nobody's ever going to know my deep, dark secret. And uh, I'm going to have to do what I can to conform and to fit in. So as I got into high school, I changed. I started to grow my hair out a little bit, took some cues from my older sister, um, had a mullet for a period of time, which was not the best decision, but it was popular for male soccer players in that day. Um, but it became increasingly difficult not to act on these attractions that were gravitating towards my, my same-sex um, uh, friends in, in, in high school. Uh, the attractions originally started with older women, where there was just something about these older mother-type figures that I wanted their attention, and it wasn't sexual in the beginning. I can remember being like nine, ten years old and just being like, I'd go visit somebody's house and I'd be like, yeah, there's something about her mom. I, I, I want her attention. I, I want her uh, to, to, to just hug me and pay attention to me and be in my life kind of thing. And I had no idea there was just an unmet need, a deficit in my own heart where I had rejected my own mother from an early, early age, despite her best efforts to mother me and nurture me. I rejected her. I judged her. I said, nope, I don't want anything to do with her and her world. And that left a deficit for mother love in my heart. And so it started with maternal figures and eventually gravitated toward my own peers where I had this need that wasn't met the way God designed and it got confused with my normal and natural sex drive and it got aimed at women instead of aimed at men. Of course, I didn't know that's what was going on. 
So I'm struggling not to act on these things while I'm in high school. And then I decided I need to find a way to get rid of these desires. I, I'm, I'm going to try to cure myself. So um, what I decided to do was maybe I'm not attracted to men because I've never tried to date a boy and uh, ex experiment sexually with them. So maybe if I do that, it will like awaken something in me that's dormant, right? Okay, so this was my grand idea to cure myself. So I decided when it came time for the turnabout dance where the girls ask the guys, I'm going to ask Brian from my physics class to come to this dance with me. So here's my first attempt, my junior year in high school, I, I'm, me, I borrowed a, a dress from my sister standing like a football player next to Brian in the borrowed dress. Uh, there were absolutely no uh, 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 sparks flying that night. And um, in fact, when I would dress up in these dresses, I felt like a man dressed in drag. Like I was just so uncomfortable in my own body. And despite my efforts to try to experiment sexually with boys, it did not awaken a thing in me. It just made me more intensely jealous. I wanted to be the boy, the man with the woman, not the woman with the man. And so I was just miserable, and my attempts to try to cure myself were not working. Well, around the same time, one of my friends invited me to a Youth for Christ outreach, and I heard the gospel for the first time. And nobody had to tell me I was a sinner and I was going to hell without Jesus because I had a lot of sin going on in my life. I had gotten exposed to pornography through some friends at a young age. I had sexual addictions. I had this sexual fetish, fetish with urinals and things going on behind closed doors. And uh, nobody knew all of that, but I knew. And I felt extremely convicted and guilty about all of that. And so I hear the gospel. And so my junior year in high school, I end up getting saved. I commit my life to Christ I started getting involved in a youth group. Uh, you can see some of the friends there. And uh, I, I actually had friends for the first time because these Christians, they like, like everybody, and it was different than the cliques at high school. It was weird. Um, but the interesting thing is I thought I would wake up the next morning after getting saved and all these desires would go away. Because if anyone's in a, a new creation, you know, in Christ, they're a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new is here. But I woke up the next morning equally attracted to women and desiring to be a man. And then I thought, oh no, now I'm in a real catch-22 because nobody was talking about these things in the church at that time. Nobody, I mean, we hardly talk about it today, but nobody was talking about it in 1989 when I got saved, right? So I thought, now I really need to try to fool people and work really hard. So I had a genuine conversion experience. I really did meet Jesus. But as I got to know other people in the body of Christ, my heart began gravitating all the more to these women who were opening up their hearts to me and I was becoming friends with people and it became increasingly difficult not to act on those desires. And I eventually did act on them thinking this is going to fulfill me, this will satisfy me. And I discovered it didn't. It left me even emptier than before. Because no amount of acting out with the same sex or in a transgender sense, rearranging the skin on the body can do anything to resolve the anguish in the soul that is leading to those desires in the first place. Of course, I didn't know that. So I go on to, to uh, college and I got involved in a campus ministry at the University of Illinois where I went to school. And um, I really did come to know Jesus. I really did um, have a genuine experience with him, was growing in my walk with him, and actually sensed a call to ministry. I didn't know that's what that was. I, um, I told the, the person who was discipling me, I said, you know, I think I'm supposed to be one of those people uh, at that church I grew up in. There was somebody who stood behind a giant pulpit and they wore a robe, you know, and they talked. I think I'm supposed to be one of those people that stands behind the pulpit and talks. 
And she said, oh, no, 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 Linda, 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 you need to know your place in the body of Christ. And she showed me two verses in the Bible that said a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, and women should be silent in the church. She had read the whole Bible. I had never read the whole Bible. I'd read parts of it, but I thought, wow, she knows more than I do. I didn't know at that time that what she was doing was taking two verses out of context, out of their cultural context, because Paul was saying something about the women in those communities at that time, but it wasn't a universal law for all women in all time. But I didn't know that. And so I thought, oh no, that's not God speaking to me. That's me. That's those transgender desires. I'm trying to do something only a man is supposed to do in the body of Christ. And I need to die to that. So I did. I died to it. And I actually became a high school English teacher for five years and denied the call of God on my life because I didn't think I was supposed to do that as a woman. So at any rate, I'm in college and I'm struggling. I'm having a rough time. And I'm madly attracted to the woman, uh, Nikki, right here, who was discipling me. And I could not keep my thoughts straight. And I was just going through such a rough time. And finally, I'm uh, senior year. I go away over Christmas. We had this conference called Christmas Conference for all the college students over Christmas break. And at that conference, somebody was talking about if you find yourself in habitual repetitive sin and you can't get free, the answer is James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I didn't hear anything else they said. All I heard that morning was, I need to take what's in the dark and bring it into the light with a trusted leader in the body of Christ who can help me if I ever want to be free from these things that I'm struggling with. And I was terrified. I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I can get free from this. I feel, if you would have asked me, Linda, are you born gay? I would have said, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've never experienced an attraction to a man. I don't know what that's like. Were you born transgender? Yeah, I think so. I don't have any desire ever of wanting to be a girl. Feel like a boy trapped in a girl body. Felt like I was born that way. And in fact, in the 1990s, the research that was coming out, they were searching for a gay gene or a reason biologically that somebody's gay. And in 1991, there was this study that came out that showed the hypothalamus in gay men, part of the brain that's linked to sexual desire, was smaller in gay men than it is in heterosexual men. And so the conclusion of that study was, hmm, we think there's a structure in your brain that actually tells us whether or not you're gay. So we might be able, to be able to look at a newborn and measure their brain and decide, compared to other newborns, is this child going to be gay or not? Two years later, in 1993, another study came out saying, we have isolated a gay gene. We have found something on the X chromosome, the XQ28 part of the, the chromosome, that everybody has a, a, an X chromosome you get from the maternal line. If you're a guy XX, a woman X, or a girl XX, guy XY. And so this would explain how homosexuality is perpetuated through the generations, even though gay people typically don't reproduce. And so it was like, oh, wow, there's, there's evidence here. There must be a reason you're born gay, right? Now, the interesting thing is, in order for a scientific experiment to become an official scientific theory, what has to be true of that experiment? What do you have to do? That's right. You have to have same control, same variable, and same result every single time. Did you know the two experiments I just shared with you have never been repeated? They are not scientific theory. It is not a fact. Although that never made the news on ABC, CBS, CNN, right? But you would assume in our culture today, people are born gay. There must be a genetic component for that, right? And that's what I was told, you know, back then. I'm thinking maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm gay, right? Born that way. But here's the interesting thing. 
regarding brain structure, what we know now, fast forward 30 years later, we know that the brain has something called neuroplasticity. It actually responds to the environment around you. So we can do an fMRI of your brain, and if you're somebody who uh, practices juggling or the violin, the, let's say the violin, the part of your brain that controls your left hand will light up and it will actually be bigger than the part that controls your right hand. But if you stop practicing the violin and, and, and don't brush up on those skills, you'll actually see that part of the brain shrink. Our brains respond to our external environment. Now the other thing we've discovered is that genetically, if you look at identical twins, that would be the best evidence that if it's entirely genetic, then when one twin is gay, what percentage of the time should the other twin who has the same DNA be gay? What percent? 100%, if it's entirely genetic, right? If I had a twin, she would have brown hair, green eyes, and wouldn't be five feet on a good day because that's just who I am, right? And she would be an identical twin, right? What we've discovered with identical twin studies is less than 10% of the time. When one twin is gay, the other twin is also gay. The researchers themselves are saying, hmm, there must be something in the environment that accounts for the discordance between the two twins, right? But you're not going to hear that on ABC, CNN, CBS, all of that, right? So the other thing these days is people are saying, well, um, there must be a hormonal influence. Maybe you were exposed to too many hormones in the womb, Linda, and so it, it, it masculinized your brain, but it didn't virilize your body. And any endocrinologist that is worth a grain of salt will tell you that hormones work indiscriminately within the body. They don't say, oh, this is a brain cell. Let's masculinize the brain cell. Oh, this is a reproductive organ. We're gonna stay away from that. Hormones work throughout your body indiscriminately. And so what we know, even with that hormonal theory, is identical twins, again, same hormonal environment when they're in the womb, does not explain why one twin would end up as transgender and the other twin not, or gay and vice versa, right? Um, another thing recently that came out just two years ago was what we call genome-wide association studies where we can look at millions of genes at once and try to see, is there any correlation between this characteristic and this genome? And what we discover when we're searching for any kind of correlation, anything that would show us when you have this particular gene pattern, for sure you're gonna be gay. They cannot find it, it's not there. And we now have the technology to look at millions of genes. My friends, the evidence is not there that you're hardwired and biologically predetermined to be gay and there's nothing you can do about it. That evidence is not there. But our culture wants it to be that way. Because if we take it out of the realm of morality and put it into the realm of civil rights, then if you say, oh, it's, it's not moral, it's not God's design for sexuality, we shouldn't act on that, you are now the equivalent of the KKK, right? Uh, you're, you're somebody who's a bigot, you're somebody who discriminates. But the reality is, is we're not born that way and there are things that can contribute to the development of same-sex attractions or transgender desires in our life. Now, I didn't know any of that back in 1991. I felt like I was born this way, didn't know I had any hope for change. And so I confessed to my campus pastor and I, I told him my deepest, darkest secret. And I said, you know, this is, this is what I'm struggling with. I expected him to expose my sin, ridicule me, be disgusted with me, kick me out of the group. And he didn't do that at all. He looked in my eyes. He said, Linda, thank you for sharing that with me. I know that took a lot of courage. And I want you to know this doesn't change our opinion of you. 
We love you. We see the hand of God on your life. And we want to get you the help that you need. My friends, that was 1994. That was a phenomenal response for where our culture was at at that time. And that was the first day in what was to be an 11-year journey of transformation in my life. Now, you may think 11 years is a long time. It's a blink of an eye in the context of eternity. I'll tell you what. And it took a while for these desires to develop in my life, so it took a little while for the Lord to unravel those things in my life. But that day in 1994, when I confessed to my campus pastor, and I walked away from that conversation, and I said, what was that? that? That was not the reaction I was expecting. And I sensed the Holy Spirit speak to my heart, and he said, Linda, that's how I feel about you. What you just saw is a picture of my heart. I love you. I'm sad that you're hurting, and I want to get you the help that you need. And so what happened over the, the course of that 11 years, God used people in the body of Christ to be like Jesus with skin on, to minister to me where I had deep wounds of rejection, for women to accept me as a woman among women and esteem me as such, and men to cherish me as a woman distinct from yet cherished by men. It was very healthy. I experienced some inner healing of wounds in the soul and even deliverance. There were demonic influences that I had invited into my life through habitual repetitive sin. Now here's what's interesting. When you look at scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about homosexuality in the context of other sins. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, that's the homosexual act, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Does anybody here today know somebody that used to be an alcoholic but is no more? Anybody know somebody that used to be sexually immoral, and that's just not who they are anymore? Anybody know somebody that was greedy, but now they're one of the most generous people you've ever met, right? We have experienced transformation in every area of our life. That's just normal for Christianity, that we would be transformed. We would be made new by the renewing of our mind, right? And we would become who God has created us to be. And the interesting thing is, the homosexual act is listed in the context of all these other sins that we, we don't think it's normal that, oh my goodness, can you believe it? He was an alcoholic, and he's totally been set free. I mean, that, that's just not like amazing to us. Like, that happens, right? And the same thing is true with those who experience same-sex attractions or even transgender desires. There's a reason why we experience those temptations, and the Lord can bring resolve. If there's a reason, there's a resolution. The Lord can bring resolve to those things. Now, there's a lie going around right now in our culture that the word homosexual was inserted into the Bible in 1946 in this very verse. It was inserted wrongly, and so we've been misinterpreting it for all these years, and we've been hurting all these gay people for all of these years. It's a popular lie that's going around in our culture right now. That lie actually is being recycled, something that went around in the 1980s is being resurrected and recycled in our culture right now. The, the, homosexual, the, the idea of homosexuality was not inserted into the Bible. It's as old as time. You can go back to the Old Testament and the very first book in the Bible, Genesis. The homosexual act is mentioned, and it is not a good thing. You go to the book of Leviticus, and God prohibits homosexual behavior. It is not his design for sexuality. We see his design in Genesis chapter 1. One man, 
one woman in a lifelong covenant, right? Male and female, he created them. And a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a reason for God's design for that way. So homosexuality is as old as time. This wasn't inserted in the Bible. Now there's some truth to the word homosexual inserted in the Bible. We didn't even use the word homosexual. Do you know that word didn't even exist 150 years ago? Didn't even exist. And what the word homosexual does is it it came out of Germany. There was this guy who himself was gay and he did not like the negative social connotations with that. And so he decided to come up with terminology describing how he would have like a feminine soul but yet have a masculine body. And it morphed into this concept of being a homosexual, having homosexual desires. What it did is it took the action, the act of men who have sex with men or women who have sex with women, took the act out of action and all of a sudden made it a noun, the homosexual. It became an orientation. Orientation is a modern social construct. It doesn't exist. Do you know what same-sex attractions are? They are disordered desires. They are desires that are not oriented to what God's design is for our sexuality. And that's true with alcoholism. That's true with gluttony. That's true with greed. It's true with any sin under the sun. Is It's a desire that God's given us that's been misdirected in the wrong direction. And God wants to reorient us to come into alignment with his design and his will for our lives, right? So the whole idea that homosexual has been inserted into the body, uh, into the word, um, the word homosexual didn't even exist. But the concept is there all throughout scripture and not once is it ever condoned as something that is God's will. So according to Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, disordered desires. What are deceitful desires? Deceit is when you're being lied to, you're being deceived. It's not the truth. These desires I had to have sex with women was not God's design for me. They were lying to me and telling me, oh, that thirst for maternal love, you can meet it by bonding with another woman. That desire to be whole in your femininity, you can meet it by bonding with some woman that's whole in her femininity. That's a lie. It didn't satisfy. It didn't all of a sudden make me whole. It just made me more broken. Those are deceitful desires that somehow becoming a man will fill all the rejection wounds in my soul. That would not. Rearranging the skin on the body does not resolve the anguish in the soul. So they are deceitful desires, but we are told to be made new in the attitude of our minds. I needed the Lord to bring revelation through words of knowledge and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to start showing me, Linda, where did those desires originate? Where did that start that you began to believe the lie, it's better to be a man than it is to be a woman? Or that somehow bonding sexually with another woman is going to meet that need for maternal love? Where did that deficit begin? And how can we bring that wound before the Father? And let the Father come in and bring healing to your heart. And forgive those who have hurt you because when we operate in bitterness and unforgiveness and let the sun go down on our anger, we give the devil a foothold, right? And so I had to repent and forgive those who had hurt me where the wounds got traction in my soul. And I had to release and forgive and get rid of the demonic influence that came with the bitterness and the unforgiveness. And as I was renewed in my mind and I did that, I put on the new self. I said, that's not who I am anymore. 
I'm not going to act on that, and I'm not going to believe those lies. I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to get fully involved in the body of Christ and let people minister to me that I'm a woman among women, and I'm going to embrace the identity that you've given me. And as I began to do that, and the Lord began to heal the wounds in my heart, I began to experience transformation. You can see in this first picture, click once, don't click once. Yeah, hold there. So in this first picture, I went from being this androgynous woman who was sporty and insecure and wounded and just I was trying to meet the wounds of my soul by connecting with other people and embracing a false identity, connecting with other women sexually and embracing a false identity. And as God began to minister to the wounds in my soul and use the body of Christ to come around me and to walk out that 11-year journey of transformation, I experienced not just internal transformation, I experienced external transformation to the point that when I went home to visit my parents, they didn't even recognize me because I had gone to embracing. Now I was wearing makeup and doing my hair and wearing feminine clothing, this time not to fool anybody, but because this is who God has created me to be. I enjoy being a woman. I like being feminine. I, am not, I didn't you know, sneak into the men's restroom this morning and try to see do you have urinals at your church. That's just not who I am anymore. The Lord has delivered me. He has set me free, free through a process. It was not instantaneous. You didn't just flip a switch and you're gay one day and straight the next or trans one day and, and okay in your, your gender the next. It, it's not that way. It's a process of discipleship and sanctification. And it's no different than discipleship and sanctification for whatever issue you might deal with that I don't deal with. You maybe you may don't have my struggle, maybe, but you deal with some things that I don't deal with, right? We all got stuff that we're dealing with, right? And it's the process of walking out sanctification and being conformed to the image of Christ, taking what's in the dark and bringing it into the light with trusted believers who can pray with us and help us receive healing in the depth of our soul, right? Amen. So I experienced transformation in my life, and what's interesting is what happened with me corresponds to what I discovered in my PhD research when I did these case studies. What I discovered when I asked these men and women, tell me about your life story. When did these desires develop? What happened? How did you find resolution? There were typically three areas where, that were influencers in the development of same-sex attractions. The first one is they were gender non-conforming children meaning they didn't fit our typical stereotype of what we think is masculine or feminine. So the little boy, for example, might be, instead of rough-and-tumble football player masculine, he was sensitive and artistic, in touch with his emotions, maybe musical, right? And for the little girl, maybe not into Barbies and dolls, but rough-and-tumble tomboy things kind of like me, right? And that's traumatic when little kids are made fun of at school because they don't fit in. And that trauma remains in the soul when that little boy is called nasty names. You're a sissy or, you know, other derogatory names. That trauma gets lodged in the soul, the mind, will, and the emotions. And because we are tripart beings, body, soul, and spirit, when that little boy grows up and as he continues to mature, he starts wondering, what's wrong with me? Why am I not a boy among boys or a man among men? And that can be traumatic, vice versa, for a woman as well. That trauma sticks with you. And so for many times, people are uncomfortable in their own skin, and they're looking to somebody else who's secure in their gender identity to bring security. They think bonding with them subconsciously. If I bond with you and become one with you, what's whole in you will make me whole. Obviously, that doesn't work, but in little kids' subliminal thinking, that's what is going on. A second area is 
adverse family circumstances where for some reason we don't bond with our parents the way God designed. And our parents, mom represents the world of woman, dad represents the world of man to every child. And so if a little girl grows up without a mommy, maybe mommy dies at a young age, or mommy just isn't able to be there, and mommy's a, a workaholic and just doesn't pay attention to her daughter, and, and just doesn't have uh, the emotional connect with her daughter that God designed, then that little girl can grow up with an emotional deficit and a love hunger for feminine love. Or vice versa, if a little boy grows up in a, a family, maybe the dad has the best of intentions, and he's a good father, but he's a rough-and-tumble kind of guy, and he does not know what to do with this artistic, sensitive son who's in touch with his emotions. And he'll say, stop crying. Boys don't cry. Don't do that. Rather than affirming him in the sensitive, merciful, compassionate heart God's given that son. That's the temperament, the personality temperament God has given him, and it's good, and it needs to be affirmed as such. But it can be, you know, subtle temperamental differences like that where we just don't bond in a meaningful way with the same parent, with the world of woman or the world of man. It can also be drastic, like there's death in the family or divorce or there's abuse. Maybe the, the father's an alcoholic and he comes home and beats on the mother and the little girl goes, I don't want to be a woman and get beat up on, so why would I ever want to be vulnerable with a man, right? Or a little boy who has an alcoholic father and he just can't bond with him. A third area is sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. When a little kid is molested, if it's a little boy, many times the perpetrator is a man, and he goes, why did my body respond that way? And why did he pick me instead of the rough and tumble guy? Is there something wrong with me? Does this mean I'm gay? And it's confusing to him. And likewise for a little girl, she can be five years old, and she's sexually molested by a boy, and she'll go in her mind, men are not safe. That will stay with her. That trauma remains in her soul. Why would she, as she grows up and becomes aware of her sexual drives and desires, why would she want to become sexually intimate with a man if she doesn't think men are safe, right? Our psychosexual development in our soul is connected to our body. We are body, soul, and spirit. And so what I discovered in my own research and in my own life is as we address roots of trauma, of rejection, of wounding in our past that, uh, that affect our development of our own sense of gender identity and sexuality, we can find healing in those wounds and we can step into the new self that God has created us to be. So how should we respond as the body of Christ? Three things today as we close. The first one is we need to demonstrate compassion without, compa without compromise by loving every person, gay, straight, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary, however they identify, American, international, rich or poor, however they are. We love every human being as a fellow image bearer, somebody made in the image of God. But secondly, we cannot compromise on the word of God. We can't compromise on God's design for sexuality. He made us male and female for a reason. He has a good thing in mind. And his, his design for marriage, one man with one woman, there's actually a whole reason behind that um, as far as how it relates to the gospel. If you're curious about that question, just uh, go on YouTube and search my name and, and search why gender matters. And I give you the theological reason why our, our sexuality as male and female actually matters to the message of the gospel and who God created us to be. So we can't compromise the word of God, but that doesn't mean we don't interact with people in the, the gay community. If I have gay neighbors, I can have them over for dinner and love them. I am not condoning their moral choices by having hospitality in my home and inviting them in and getting to know them, right? How else are people going to come to know Jesus? 
We have to be out there in the world loving people, salt and light. But at the same time, I will not compromise uh, what the word of God says. So I'm, I'm not necessarily going to attend a gay wedding uh, any more than I would attend a wedding between a, a man, a pedophile, and a five-year-old kid. I, I just, I, I can't condone something that is not God's design, right? Likewise, if a, if a transgender person is around me, I'm going to love them as a fellow human being made in the image of God. Let's say Bruce Jenner walked in the door today, and he was visiting our church. I would walk straight up to him. I would shake his hand. I would look him in the eyes and say, we are so honored that you are here today. I have a seat up in front next to me. Would you like to come sit down next to me? I will honor him as a fellow human being made in the image of God, even though I totally disagree with his moral choices. And yet you'll notice, I didn't need to use a name. I didn't call him Caitlin, and I didn't call him him or her. I don't have to when I speak directly to somebody with compassion and look in their eyes. I'm not going to compromise what the Word of God said. I, it would violate my conscience to participate in a known lie. He is a man. We all know he's a man. He won the decathlon in the Olympics. I, it's, it's no secret, right? It would violate my conscience to call him a woman. That's not who God created him to be, but I recognize there are deep wounds in his soul that are driving him to this kind of behavior. So I want to have compassion without unnecessarily offending but as we get to know each other in relationship over time, and he experiences my love in the context of relationship, he might say, you know, Linda, I've noticed you don't call me. You don't refer to me as Caitlin when you talk to other people. You don't call me she or her. And at that point, hopefully we have enough relational collateral because I've invested in him as a fellow image bearer. And I say, you know what, Bruce, or maybe I won't say his name because I don't want to unnecessarily offend, but I'll say, you know, um, I understand that you want to go by Caitlin and, and all of that, and that's contrary to the, God's biblical design for sexuality. God designed you as a man for a good reason and a good purpose, but I recognize that's not your moral compass, and I'm not going to force my conscience upon you, but I ask you to extend me the same courtesy and not force your conscience on me and, and, and force me to participate in, to me, what is a known lie. That's a tough conversation to have, my friends. But the Bible says we are to speak the truth in love. Truth is loving. So we can't compromise. And the third thing, finally, is at their root, same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria are not a sexual issue. They result from wounds of rejection and lies that become embedded in the soul. There's a reason, and that means there's also a resolution in Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with a couple resources today. First one on my website, which is just my name, lindaseiler.com. There's a, a six-session uh, series, a one-day seminar. You can get all six sessions. It's, it's normally uh, 50 bucks for the whole session, but if you go online and use the code BETHEL21 between now and Friday, you can get 50% off, and you can get that whole thing uh, for the online videos. If you want a hard copy, we can mail that to your house, but to be tr truthful, I don't know how to make a coupon code for the hard copy, so <laughs> you're going to have to pay full deal for the, the hard copy, but we'll ship it to your house for free. And then secondly, there is a ministry called RestoryMinistries.org that I and several other Assemblies of God believers have established to equip the church uh, to address homosexuality and gender uh, identity issues. And so if you're looking for more resources for you or for a friend or a loved one, you can go to that website as well and find some resources.